Welcome to Feed, a food systems podcast presented by Table. I'm Matthew Kessler, and today we have a special episode for you on reducing hunger and narrowing the yield gap in sub-Saharan Africa. We're joined by Martin Van Edersham, professor in plant production systems at Wageningen University. I think there's different layers of, of explanation. I mean, purely from the crop perspective, you could say, okay, the crop lacks nutrients. It lacks a good weed management, pest control, etc. So that's the, the simple agronomic explanation. And in theory, you can solve it by, by applying these inputs. Um, of course, it's not as simple as that because the farmers would probably do it if that is the only uh, trick. Um, so the next question is, why don't farmers do it? Martin is trained as an agronomist and has led the Global Yield Gap Atlas project that has mapped and examined opportunities to increase agricultural production on agricultural land across the world. Martin also has a guest professorship at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences with the production ecology and ecology departments. And we have Clara Fischer, associate professor in rural development and a senior lecturer in environmental communications at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, who you may recognize from a past conversation in season one of the Feed podcast. I think also that we need agriculture development. The problem is if advisors or development agencies or governments come in with the idea about how this should happen, I think uh, you you have like a recipe for how to raise yields, which will work. But I don't think it works to implement that recipe top down. Clara enters this conversation from a critical social sciences perspective and has spent over a decade in the field working with African smallholders across South Africa, Uganda, and Zambia. I really enjoyed this conversation that you'll hear today. It probably helped that we were all together at a studio in Uppsala, Sweden. In this chat, we'll hear from two researchers who share an area of focus, food and farming in sub-Saharan Africa but come at this topic from very different backgrounds and experiences. The starting point is how to narrow the yield gap in sub-Saharan Africa. Both speakers agree that it's really important to increase food production across the continent to feed the population that's projected to double from 2020 to 2050, and again from 2050 to 2100. If Africa aspires for self-sufficiency with their food production, the continent would need to double, or in some cases triple, their production from today's levels. But while increasing yields are important, is it the right focus and frame for how to reduce hunger? Will bottom-up or top-down interventions lead to a more resilient food system? And should we be focusing on the challenges of today, or should we be gearing up to confront the growing demand for food in the decades to come? Both Martin and Clara present different and sometimes complementary approaches when thinking about these questions. But first, let's start with the basics. Let's start with you, Martin. What is the yield gap? Yield gap that is defined as the difference between what farmers produce today on their fields, so the yields under current conditions, and what they could achieve if they did everything perfect um, with, with the crop. So enough water, enough nutrients, no weeds, no pests and diseases, and, and that is called the potential yield. And the difference between potential and what farmers achieve today, that is what we define as the yield gap. 
Martin Van Andersen was inspired to develop the Global Yield Gap Atlas in the wake of two food price crises in 2008 and 2011. Martin and his colleague, Kenneth Caspin, at the University of Nebraska, had many discussions about trends in global food availability and related challenges, like food price increases and how to feed a planet with 10 billion people. We both found it very important to have a better view on uh, how much more can we produce on existing agricultural land. So no further expansion of the area uh, at, at the cost of, uh, of, uh, of, of ecosystems and, and coming with a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, etc. So what is the capacity in different places on our planet to increase production on existing land? And then the yield gap is a very um, useful notion. So what does the Global Atlas Project look like? We quantify what are the yield gaps of our major food crops. Uh, so not not every single small crop, but the focus was until now on, on say, the 10 most important food crops, country by country. So working with local ex- experts um, to get the best data and to get a, a proper evaluation of the results, quantifying the yield gaps for the important food crops country by country, and then mapping these into an atlas online available freely for everyone, and as a kind of Wikipedia, um, improve estimations uh, when better data become available. Twelve years after the project started in 2011, the Yield Gap Atlas now has collected data from local experts in over 70 countries. Which gives actually a striking differences across the, the, the planet. In Europe, in, in China, in the US, where farmers are close to 70-80% of what is the maximum. Uh, so the yield gap is only 20 to 30 percent, you could say. But if you look at the other extreme, uh, and that is particularly sub-Saharan Africa, uh, farmers achieve maybe only 20 percent of what is uh, theoretically possible. Um, so yield gaps of around 80 percent. That means some farmers have the potential to double, triple, or even quadruple their harvests. We'll talk later about some of the conditions that are preventing this. So Clara, I want to bring you in here. I'm sure that you would agree with your work with smallholders, the importance of bringing in voices on the ground into this decision-making process. But I also, from our past conversation, I know that if you could write the narrative on how we address all the challenges facing our food system, including reducing global hunger, I'm not sure you would start this discussion focusing on yield. Yes. First of all, I want to say that in many of the African contexts where I have worked, uh, farmers do produce very low yields uh, and and also many smallholders would like to have higher yields. So I, I agree with that starting point. Um, then I think that we, we need to make sure that the focus on yields d- doesn't mean that we end up focusing only on the farm. Uh, and because the problem is at the farm, so say if we see that the problem is the low yield and the problem is on the farm, but the solution uh, might not be on the farm. For example, there is a lot of effort in Africa now, in the at least in the past decade, to raise yields. And, and there is a lot of talk about this new uh, green revolution for Africa. And many African countries have focused on delivering uh, modern seed and fertilizer to smallholders. And that can be important uh, for some smallholders in some contexts. Clara Fisher points out that the reason yields might be low in smallholder systems isn't necessarily because of the particular seeds and fertilizers. Many smallholders in southern Africa, for example, uh, plant late 
because they don't have their own cattle and they need to wait to borrow cattle from someone else for plowing. So the, especially the poorest ones, they cannot plant when they know that it's optimal to plant because they have to wait until they can rent the tractor or, or borrowing animals for someone else. And then they will plant too late and they will get a lower harvest. Clara has some concerns about the assumptions that are built into the yield gap analysis. The yield gap helps define the problem as yields are low because of the type of soil or because there are too few inputs into the farm system. She wonders if that limits what types of change are then possible. I'm also thinking about uh, the assumptions about what we can change and what we can't change. The yield gap analysis focuses on that we can change uh, agronomic factors, but we can't change society. It takes it for granted that we cannot shape what humans eat, for example. At the same time, we know from lots of research that uh, we, we are shaped all the time by supermarkets. We are nudged by commercials. Society can definitely shape what people eat and what people do in general. I don't think we can see it as something inevitable that as people get richer, they will eat more meat and rich people cannot reduce their meat consumption. That is something that we also need to question. Yield gap focus frames the problem. It frames the problem as an agronomic problem. And the other problems are sort of, they are left uh, invisible uh, or they are seen as something that is, it's just natural. This is just natural. It's not something that we can do anything about. So we focus on what we can do something about, which from an agronomist perspective, what you can do something about is what you are trained to do something about. Martin, I'll be happy to hear you respond to that, but I'd also like you to paint the big picture of the continent of Africa. You said in, in some areas, crops are receiving 20% of their yield. Can you talk a little bit about some of the trends in Africa and some of the issues they're facing in the next 30 years? I mean, as an agronomist, of course, I tend to focus on, on yield and, and how to achieve yields, etc. But specifically when it's about Africa, my my prime entrance would not be yields, but my prime entrance would be the enormous increase in demand that we that we see happening, and that is projected. And uh, yes, partly, but actually only a small part is due to dietary change. It's by far the most because of more people. So the 1.1 billion people currently living in sub-Saharan Africa is projected to be over 2 billion by 2050 and close to 4 billion by 2100. And at the moment, many people in Africa are not receiving sufficient food and nutrition. Even partially narrowing these yield gaps could significantly contribute to a more food-secure Africa in the future. And having such a reliance on international markets can create some pretty notable vulnerabilities. Uh, take the example of Ukraine and Russia, uh, how that has affected the poorest countries. So I, I would, um, that's my concern, and, and the yield gap comes after that, it's, it's secondary. Uh, but my concern is the, the trends in Africa and whether this continent can, not 100% perhaps, but at least for 80% feed, feed themselves, just to make them to a large degree independent of, of what is happening in the rest of the world. Clara, is there anything that you'd like to add to it? Because you're working with people on the ground about what the future of, of their livelihoods and their farms might look like. I think uh, I agree with Martin that I'm sure that most African countries want to uh, produce more food and they want to raise yields. I think that there is a big uh, a gap between most 
the majority of farming in in sub-Saharan Africa is done by smallholders who farm for subsistence mainly. Maybe they sell a bit also. And they are smallholders because they have little land. Uh, and some, for some of them, farming is their main activity. And for some of them, farming is maybe a backup activity. And there is, I would say, in many cases, a big disconnect between these smallholders and what they do and their lives and priorities and the African governments. Uh, and I think that is a big problem. So Clara finds Martin's research both relevant and important, but she has some concerns about the focus on yield gaps and how it's operationalized by different actors. And I come back to all these investments in raising yields that are going on in practice. What often what has happened in in the past years is that many African governments and big international donors have focused on giving smallholders modern seed and fertilizer. And this modern seed has been, in many cases, seed that is uh, bred to be suitable under optimal circumstances. Uh, it's, it's seed that work really well for the large-scale farmers in these contexts that have possibility of irrigation, possibility for optimal pest management and weed management and so on. And these seed don't perform well on smallholders' land and or they perform well one season, but they are not resilient to the, the dynamic environment that most smallholders farming and and that's a big problem because there is this idea about the, we we should raise yields and then we should do like the large farmers do this is not an idea in research this this is a policy idea i would say i mean first of all i think that there is appropriate seed at at research level at least i know for example in south africa there are several small initiatives uh, developing uh, open pollinated certified maize varieties that are highly suitable for smallholders diverse contexts. But smallholders cannot buy this seed. They are not in the shops. What's in the shops are, are the, the seed that are suitable to the large-scale farmers. So there is a big problem, I would say. Before moving into discussion about the interventions or solutions to address the yield gap, we first need to talk about how we're defining the problem. What are the root causes of a yield gap? I mean, th- then we come to the question about what what causes the yield gap, mm. and, and 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 I think there's different layers of of explanation. I mean, purely from the crop perspective, you could say, okay, the crop lacks nutrients, um, and that can come from fertilizers, can come from manure, whatever. It lacks a good weed management, timely weed management. It lacks, lacks maybe um, pest control, etc. So that's the, the simple agronomic explanation. And in theory, you can solve it by, by applying these inputs or having the right cultivars, etc. Of course, it's not as simple as that because the farmers would probably do it if that is the only uh, trick. Um, so the next question is why don't farmers do it? And, and often there's a, there's a lack of credit. So they can't buy, they can't afford the inputs at the start of the season, wait for four, five, six months until they can harvest uh, and, and get some money back. Um, so that that is a main constraint. There's probably also sometimes knowledge issues of, or um, knowing what to do in the right moment, the right time. So where extension can play a critical role. So after the agronomic layer... The next layer includes what inputs are available, 
Can farmers afford and have access to credits to purchase those inputs? And whether the farmers are knowledgeable about when and how much inputs to apply? There's another layer, and then we come probably closer to what you're saying, Clara. Um, the, the, the policy dimension and, and stability, knowing how markets will look like, markets function, first of all, and how markets will look like in half a year or one year or two years from now. So knowing more or less what price ratios will be and knowing that you can sell your surplus that you don't need on your own farm to a market for a certain price. Um, infrastructure that can help to, uh, to, to make inputs cheaper and to, on the other hand, make sure you can actually bring your stuff to the market. And, and in general, I would say a stable facilitating climate, political climate, investment climate, economic climate, etc., um, that, that allows, in the end, farmers to use the inputs and to, to narrow yield gaps. That was a really helpful picture of the different nests of intervention. Say you have the agronomic on the inner nest, then the social factors, then you have the economic factors, and then the political factors, and they're really all playing a role here. And I think this is something that, that you're both in agreement about, is that there is a need to increase yields, and there are these different nested circles that we need to work within to get there. But how do we address the gap? There's growing momentum for the regenerative agriculture movement. Similar to organic and agroecological systems, regenerative agriculture aims to minimize farm inputs and adopt farming principles that mimic natural ecosystems, like diversifying farm products, integrating crops and livestock on the farm, and recycling nutrients. I asked Martin if this would make a good future for sub-Saharan Africa. To give the short answer, I think no. Um, that's very black and white and unnuanced, <laughs> I realize. Um, but, but let me explain why I, why I give a fairly bold answer. The situation in Africa is very, very different from the one in Europe or in other places on, on the planet, where actually there's, there's very good things in regenerative and in agroecology, etc., but the situation in Africa is, is such that if you look at the yields and the systems today, there's actually, in many cases, a mining of the soil. So the crop yields, how, how low they are, they take up more than actually uh, is supplied by the farmer every year. So the, the, there's a net depletion of the system. And to say that we should circulate more or use more organic inputs, in principle, this is correct. We should do that always. But um, then there, there must be nutrients that can be circulated, and there is not enough to circulate. That would be my point. The, the livestock sector is, is modest in terms of size compared to what we are used to in Europe, in China, or in the US. They eat less livestock products, and, and in general, the sector is... That depends a bit. I mean, Ethiopia, there's many livestock, and, and so it's country by country, it, it varies. But overall, in, in Africa, the livestock sector is much smaller. So, And the, the manure that is available, that's, that is used in, in many different ways. And, and we, as Western society, could learn from it in terms of circularity, I think, because it will generally not be wasted. It will be used to... Um, for energy, for cooking, to plaster the houses and, and to fertilize the soils, but, but maybe not primarily, but in second or in third instance. Um, so it's very circular, but there is not enough. Um, so 
I, I don't see an alternative than than using mineral fertilizers as a complement. And let's be happy; it's possible um, to to add nutrients and in that way crank up the yields. Can you talk about what an intervention of a mineral fertilizer could look like? Yeah, first of all, of course, the the agronomic experiments show that and have shown that for for many years, but. There's often a, a, a large contrast between what's going on in an experimental station and what's going on on farm. Um, but if you look at the recent trends in some countries that have been active in subsidizing fertilizers or, or uh, let's say, making sure that they are more easily accessible to the farmers, that yields have gone up. And, mm. and uh, this is true in Ethiopia. This is true has been true in Malawi. This is true to some extent in Zambia. So at a national level... We see improvements in yield with the use of more fertilizers that can lead to a more food-secure continent, which of course makes sense. Clara talks about what it looks like on the farm when working with smallholders. So, so my experience from working closely with smallholders that they really appreciate access to mineral fertilizer. Mm. It increases their yields uh, and, and they want fertilizer. What I think will be the challenge is that uh, if we look at the like the the hope, let's say, of closing the yield gap to 80%, that, that uh, requires a quite high input of fertilizer. Uh, and most smallholders, they want fertilizer, but they will never apply that much because they think, they think it's too costly and they see a big effect of applying a small amount. So who is going to make this change? And if we think a little bit about smallholder agency and what, if I'm a smallholder uh, and uh, I let's say I'm the head of a family with um, some teenage kids who are at home and I have a, a husband and we, ha- we have quite a lot of labor in the family. So in this case, labor is not the limiting factor, uh, but, but we are poor and we don't buy a lot of inputs for our farm. For this family, I think uh, an intervention that subsidizes fertilizer or even gives it for free would make a big difference. Um, but I would not apply all that fertilizer to that field that that is recommended to me because I'd rather sell some to my neighbor because you don't you don't see the purpose of it, it just seems I think for many smallholders it seems extremely wasteful somehow that's yeah. one thing that's going to happen I think then for another smallholder that might be uh, a single woman with with a bunch of kids, she doesn't have enough labor and she doesn't, she cannot pay anyone for labor either. And she cannot trade labor because she doesn't have anything to give. Uh, she will not be helped by fertilizer because that's not the limiting factor. It is a limiting factor, but there is another limiting factor that prevents her from using the fertilizer. So, so when we take it down to the smallholder level, we, we sort of come to different challenges that we need to think about how to address and, and how to make it beneficial for smallholders to address them. No, I think I, I, I get that and I understand that. And, and maybe it points at, a, say, different timeframes that we are talking about. I, I look at a, where we need to move towards to in 2050. I'm not saying, and I cannot say exactly what we need to do tomorrow, uh, whereas Clara probably thinks more about, okay, what's, what's next? Mm. Uh, 
Um, we started the conversation because of introducing agroecology circularity with, with fertilizers. It would be a great mistake to focus too much on fertilizers only because mm. it doesn't make sense to, to throw a bag of fertilizers on the field if your seed is not in good shape, if you don't have enough seed. I've seen many maize fields where you can bike through the field without hitting any plant. Um, so, so few plants are there on the field. So a proper number of plants is very important. Um, and doing the tillage, doing the weed management, doing the pest, pest and disease uh, management, etc. If you don't do that right, it, it's a waste indeed to throw too much fertilizers on the field. Absolutely. The other thing is that I think it's a development. Um, we don't need to close the yield gap um, say from uh, 20% of the potential to 80% of the potential in a few weeks. Um, the population will grow, but uh, in 30 years, uh, if we take that perspective. So I think it's a process um, where gradually you have to increase your fertilizer or your nutrient supply, I would say. It's not necessarily only mineral fertilizers. Hand in hand with other inputs that allow the farmer to achieve a high yield. Now, having said that, I, I realize that many farmers in Africa are small, are very small, uh, maybe half a hectare, one hectare, two hectares. But in that range is the majority of the farm households in Africa. But I, I think you said something really important now when you said that we don't need to raise yields from 20 to 80 right away. Overnight. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But, and I think that is a main problem, that that's how many governments and donors think That's why, because I don't think that we will not solve anything by giving smallholders uh, modern seed and and fertilizer recommendations about maximizing their their production. It needs to be sort of taken stepwise. Yeah. And I think, for example, giving smallholders certified healthy local varieties that will raise their yields, but not massively, it makes a big difference. And and also I think that poverty is a major problem. That maybe maybe social security would would solve more than focusing on the seed. Mm. Um, in many cases, if if farmers had some more money, they could make more choices. They would have more agency to choose their future, and some would opt out of farming. Also, so I find this really interesting because Martin is coming at this from this macro picture long time scale about really setting the target of where we need to go in the future. And Clara, you're coming from this very micro scale, this very on the ground perspective. You just mentioned social security. Uh, what other interventions would you put forward to not only improve the livelihoods of farmers, but also to shrink the yield gap? I think investing in uh, government sponsored agricultural advisory services would make a big difference. Uh, there's uh, very limited access to agricultural advice for smallholders and most is private sector, which is not suited to the smallholders because the private sector goes where the money is, of course. So so it's it's very appropriate for, for large-scale commercial farmers, but not for the smallholders. I think that would make a big difference. I think also taking smallholder perspectives into agronomy training Because the advisors that come out, they are very highly trained in providing advice and understanding the large-scale commercial system, but they are not often well-trained in understanding the smallholder context and the challenges there. Uh, and that's why it, 
the advice that smallholders get, there's often a big divide between the advice and what is possible in the local context. I think that's, that's one thing to work with. Martin before spoke about the issue of timescale, how to get from the situation today to 2050. He next picks up on the issue of farm scale. I can't see that the future of, of the current farm structure is in any way sustainable. Um, we set small farms of half to, say, two hectares. The majority of the farms are in that range. And, and the trend is, is getting smaller. So if there's new kids, then the land will be divided among the kids. So I don't see how Africa can, can feed itself with such a fragmented small-scale agriculture. And I'm not thinking about mechanization uh, like in on the biggest farms in Europe or in, in the US or in Latin America, but small-scale mechanization is not affordable in these conditions. Job alternatives should go hand-in-hand hand with scaling of agriculture, I believe. Otherwise, I, I don't see the real developments um, going on and picking up to move towards uh, a more productive agriculture, which is needed to feed the, the, the population. We left off talking about different interventions to reduce the yield gap in sub-Saharan Africa. The next part of the conversation really gets into the weeds about how to prioritize agriculture and economic development. Basically, does improving smallholder agriculture lead to economic development, or does economic development bring people out of smallholder agriculture? I really think that the, the major issue is to reduce poverty. um, I think if the land fragmentation we see is a result of poverty. uh, And so, yeah, that's why I I come back to social security. Uh, So maybe that wouldn't wouldn't make everyone invest more in their farming, but it gives people more options. And there is a reason that that people in our part of the world have large farms. It's because they are they aren't poor. (laughs) They, They they have access to what they need. It, it's really tough to be a farmer in also in Sweden and in other places and, and they have huge loans and so on but they still they have a completely different situation than this uh, smallholder with half a hectare mm-hmm. um, we also come to an issue about the, the fragmentation needs to be reduced and maybe it's not possible to produce efficiently on a very small scale but uh, that that's not my competence but I'm thinking that to prevent that from happening, people must must have other possibilities, and and then we need to reduce poverty. It's a little bit like if, if we think about a completely different topic: um, how many children a woman has. The, the major impact on on uh, lowering the amount of children you have is to uh, have have good good health care, mm-hmm. reduce poverty. So yeah. the, the the solution is not where the problem is. It doesn't help to tell someone that you should have fewer kids yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or you will only get uh, uh, childcare benefits for your two for two kids and yeah. no more. That 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 and, I, mean, I agree. Ending poverty is 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 extremely important or, or decreasing poverty. Um, question is probably is this possible without agricultural development? Mm. No. All, yeah. all the examples we've seen in the past, and I'm not saying we, we need to follow just one model, but all the examples of the past are that 
an economy develops because agriculture develops. And, and if agriculture develops, the processing industry of agriculture products and food products can develop. And that brings uh, the need for other services and industrial sectors, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's, it's a driver, it's an engine of economic growth and of, of slowing down poverty. Uh, now I think I know what I think the problem is. <laughs> Uh, or what I'm reacting to is that uh, yes I think also that we need agriculture development the problem is if advisors or or development agencies or governments come in with the idea about how this should happen I think uh, you you have like a recipe for how to raise yields which will work but I don't think it works to implement that recipe top down uh, and evidence shows that it doesn't work so i think we need to sort of um, be a bit patient like 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 you said before martin that we cannot close the yield gap right away it takes time and i think we need to be a bit patient and work from the bottom up and try to implement the changes and address the problems that smallholders perceive that they have because otherwise we will not there, there won't be agriculture development and i think this is what causes a lot of frustration now in many african governments and with donors that they you know they provide all these inputs and they give the advice that smallholders should do this and it doesn't happen and then sometimes there is also a discourse about that smallholders are lazy and backwards and don't understand and so on so you 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 place your failure with the people who you are trying to change, but maybe the reason is that they don't want to change in the way you try to change them. Um, so I think the risk maybe with that yield gaps get a lot of attention globally is that it shifts focus away from other issues and it makes some people somehow forget that, okay, yeah, this we, we need higher yields, we need better varieties, we need fertilizer, we need better weeding and so on. Yes, but it will not work just to take that recipe and put it in a context where people have other challenges and might not prioritize changing that right now. So that that's a big. I mean, again, I I, I picture difficulty. The, I think I want to picture the larger picture and the context longer term. I have no pretension to know what farmers need to do in different environments tomorrow. Um, it's a very complicated question, and I answer that. If, if people ask me what do farmers need to do, need to do now or tomorrow, I answer with a lot of hesitation <laughs> because environments are so different mm. and there is no silver bullet for for all these different farms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me, the the longer term perspective is that yields have to move up. That this cannot be done without nutrients and unfortunately not without mineral fertilizers uh, to some extent and and. Let's hope we learn with Africa from all the mistakes we made in Europe and in China and other places, so not, not overdoing. And, and I think for, the, for tomorrow and the next years, there's many ways to make the first steps, uh, also with, with little fertilizers, um, by introducing grain legumes or legume crops in general that can fix nitrogen from the atmosphere, by integrating livestock to, to the best extent and in that we're using the manure that is available by um, crop rotations, etc., etc., and, and uh, maybe not the, the most modern varieties, but the varieties that allow higher yields and can stand some inputs, mm-hmm. etc. So to make these first steps, I'm not the specialist to say exactly which farmer should do what, but as long as the direction 
of development is there, then then uh, it makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I'm just concerned that it's it's not enough between the ears of many people in Europe, but perhaps also in Africa. I don't know what the perspective is with this doubling of population, uh, dietary change, which is hardly avoidable, and the fragmented small-scale agriculture. That can mean enormous problems for the continent itself, hunger, uh, conflicts, um, starvation, etc., and in the end also migration in, at a scale mm. that we've never seen before. That is one future that you just laid out. And I want to ask you, Martin, and then I'll ask you after Clara as maybe a closing, what does a good food future look like in Africa? I would say um, if Africa, uh, in my view, should be to a large extent self-sufficient in future. Um, so not be hugely dependent upon other continents. The idea that Europe or US can feed Africa, I mean, I, I don't think that's that's realistic, viable, desirable, etc. So a, a self-sufficient Africa to a large extent, um, let's say 80% or so, that requires a more productive agriculture, hopefully learning from the mistakes that we've made elsewhere, so uh, so a much more environmentally responsible type of agriculture, um, to, to help the continent of Africa f- um, hearing what the continent wants itself. I think they're in the, in the lead, but with the support from the rest of the world would be highly needed. And you, Clara, what is your, what is your vision? What is your good food future? My vision is that African governments and donors pay more attention to smallholders' situations and what they want. Uh, I think that is an important success recipe for, for agriculture development and also more investments in agricultural advice, in, including veterinary services. To, uh, there is a huge lack of access to to advice and services for smallholders. And I think that is something that I see again and again in my work that it would make a big difference and it's something that smallholders request. And what you just said, Clara, doesn't conflict with what no, I said. No, I think it both doesn't. Is yeah, exactly. But it's yeah. a different pers- yeah, time it, perspective. It doesn't. Thank you both very much for speaking with us in person Thank here you. on uh, beautiful Uppsala, Sweden on a grey overcast day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. A big, big thank you to Clara Fisher and Marty Van Anderson. We'll post links to their work and their articles and the Yield Gap on our website, tabledebates.org. And a big thanks to you for listening. It really helps if you rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Table is a food systems collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Wageningen University. You can follow more of our work by subscribing to our newsletter, Fodder. We're currently working on our next season of the podcast, Should Food Systems Be More Natural? If you have ideas, guest suggestions, comments, things you'd like to hear us explore, you can send us an email to podcast at tabledebates.org. This episode was produced and edited by me, Matthew Kessler, with special thanks to Ava Thusman for sharing her expertise when reviewing the episode. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Talk to you soon.